BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hey, welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Oh, yes. Here we are. We're back Just with episode 70. 70. Big 7-0. Yeah, it feels like a milestone. I feel like we say that yeah. about every five episodes, yeah. though, at this point. It's true. Wow, can you believe we've done <laughs> can this you many? believe it? I know. It's just exciting. It is exciting. Well, once yeah. you cross like the 50, it's like, oh, wow, we've done this many times. Yeah, How fun for sure. is that? Yeah. Well, anyway, what are you drinking tonight, babe? Well, uh, I decided, as I think our Patreon subscribers know, mm-hmm. can't remember if I've done this on a regular episode too, but I've been really focusing on cutting back on sugar, mm-hmm. which is a big feat for me. But I also believe in the joys of moderation. Yes. And so tonight I'm having a Baja Blast. Yes. Bring out the Mountain Dew Baja Blast. It's so good. Exclusively. at ta- Almost exclusively. At you Taco can get Bell. it a lot of places. but No longer exclusively at Taco <laughs> Bell. <laughs> yes. Remember when you? you could only oh. get it at Taco Bell? Yeah. Only, the only place you could. I, I know. That. Those were sweet days. Back when things were simple. I know. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> I... Pulled out. I also don't remember the last time uh, that I that I said this, but I uh, pulled out the, that bottle of Moscato we had in the fridge. Yeah. And I'm drinking a lovely little glass of Moscato. This time not in a Yeti cup. This time not in a Yeti cup. It's in a little wine glass that Krista, former yeah. guest on the, uh, on the podcast, actually gave us. She made those. She made these? Yeah. Oh, that's but cool, she, too. She, like, decorated them for yeah. us. Oh, that's sweet. This one says, I love you. The other one says, I like you. Yeah. I love it. Thanks, Krista. Thanks, Krista. Well, love, do you have a feel-good fact for us this week? Yes, I have a rather unorthodox okay. feel-good fact. It is a fact, and it does make me feel good, though. So I thought, let's do it. So in case you missed the Instagram and or Facebook post, mm-hmm. we officially have been doing this show for one full year. Wow. As of Tuesday, the 6th. That's crazy. I know. June 6th, the birthday of this one's a doozy. I know. And really, we'd recorded episodes even before that. I know, but the official one-year release one year. Yeah. anniversary. That's wild. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I'm like, yeah. It's really an exciting thing. I'm yeah. loving it. So. That's so cool. thought that was a little alternative feel-good fact. Look at us. Look at us. Sticking to our guns for a whole year. <laughs> no. Now so this whole thing can get on the drain. That's yep. great. <laughs> well, with that, see you later, <laughs> <that>. everyone. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, well, my love, uh, I've walked in on you watching documentaries and reading books mm. and buying more books <laughs> and all these wonderful things over the last year, but I've especially done it this week and you've paused everything and stopped so I don't get any spoilers, but I'm ready. What do you got for us this week? Okay. So I'm going to open this one up with a quote, quote, I looked at the vague, but reassuring forms of the doctors around me. Abruptly, my vision cleared. The sudden horror of what I saw rocked me as I realized I was definitely not in a hospital. 
I was looking square into the face of a horrible creature with huge, luminous brown eyes the size of quarters. I looked frantically around me. There were three of them. Hysteria overcame me instantly, end quote. This is the story of what many people believe to be the most believable and certainly the most widely documented case of alien abduction. This is the story of Travis Walton. What? Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy. Oh my, I'm very excited about this. Yeah, we okay. haven't done one of these yet. I don't even know. I, I don't know what one of these is, but I know this alien intro abduction. is. Okay, good. Wow. All right. Let's do it. I knew you would be excited about this one. Well, just for a little bit of context, this is kind of the alien abduction story. There's a couple other very famous ones, mm-hmm. but in at least in recent, recent history, this is like the one. This, he's like the top dog of oh. alien abduction stories because okay. it was so well documented. So anyway, let's jump in. I can't wait. All right. Okay, so on Wednesday, November 5th, 1975, a logging crew made up of seven men loaded up in the early morning hours for a regular workday. They had been contracted to do some important cleanup work in the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest near the town of Snowflake, Arizona. The forest itself is actually part of a network of the largest ponderosa pine forest in the entire world, stretching from the southern part of the Grand Canyon all the way into New Mexico. It's like millions and millions mm, of square yeah. miles wow. of of Ponderosa Pines. By all accounts, it was a pretty typical day for the young foresters. Their primary job was to locate and remove all of the dead or dying trees from the forest in an attempt to limit the likelihood of forest fires for the sake of like preserving that portion of the forest. Mm -hmm. As night rolled around and it started getting chilly and difficult to see, the guys wrapped up their work and made their way to their vehicle. They dropped off their oil cans and chainsaws and pulled away from the area just after 6 p.m. As they made the isolated drive out of the forest, they noticed a light coming through the trees about 100 yards ahead of them. Since the sun had already set, the guys wondered if maybe they were seeing flashlights or lanterns from hunters ahead of them, or more concerning was the possibility that they were looking at a fire. Mm. The group was obviously pretty fixated on the light, but the source of it was heavily obscured by the towering pine trees surrounding them. At one point, multiple members of the group caught a glimpse of something that they straight up could not wrap their minds around. One of them said it looked like a crashed plane hanging in a tree. Mm. They hustled their way into a clearing in the trees, and that's when they saw it. Hovering silently about 20 or so feet off the ground, just below the tree line of a nearby ridge, was what they all believed to be a flying saucer. The craft was described as being roughly 15 to 20 feet in diameter and about 10 feet thick, so like from top to bottom. Mm -hmm. It was disc-shaped and gold or chrome in color. One of the men would compare it to two pie pans placed lip to lip in shape, and it appeared that there was like a lighter colored dome above the top of the craft, but it was hard to tell from the angle that they were looking at it. Yeah. Also, that is not very large. No, it's not. Not as large as you would think. Yeah, you would think it would be bigger. Yeah. And we've heard stories where it's like, they're like shockingly large. Right. So it was interesting that this one was smaller. This one's like the size of like our living room. Right. So interesting. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so it had no visible antennas or protrusions of any kind, but it did have a slightly duller colored trim, almost like a stripe on it. It's like they they Mm. were able to gather a lot of details. Less than 30 yards in front of them, they watched as the object continued hovering silently, mere seconds feeling like an eternity as their hearts pounded and their brains puzzled at the bizarre sight. While most of the group sat motionless, struck with awe and fear, 22-year-old Travis Walton grasped that this was absolutely a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and he wanted to get a closer look at it. Mm. Without warning, Travis quickly bolted from the truck and towards the object, filled with a deep sense of urgency. Different members of the group called after him in hushed but sharp whispers, frantically trying to get their friend away from the machine in the sky. He paused for a second and turned towards his friends, but ultimately turned back around and kept moving. As Travis got further from his friends in the truck, he kind of had the thought that maybe this was a super bad idea, like maybe he was in danger, but he decided he was just going to commit to it. So he pushed forward, despite the pleas and warnings coming from his friends that were getting increasingly louder as he took every step. Bold. As he got closer to the object, he crouched down to avoid being seen by anyone or anything that might be inside of it. And that's when he picked up a strange combination of sounds. On one hand, he heard sounds that were so high-pitched that they were almost inaudible. And then on the other, he heard and felt a sound at such a low frequency that he might not have heard it 
at all if mm. it was not accompanied by a low humming vibration that gently shook the ground around him like it was coming from some kind of extremely heavy machinery. Mm, yeah. He described the overall nature of the sounds as mechanical, but not from any type of machine that he could pinpoint. Back in the truck, the men also felt that strange vibration and could hear the noises as well. One of them, um, the one who was driving, I think it was uh, a guy by the name of Mike, he had his hand on the steering wheel mm-hmm. and he could feel the steering wheel like vibrating. And he yeah. put his hand on the window just to see like, is this the truck or mm-hmm. is this the thing in the sky? And the window was shaking. Yeah. Wow. It was like a very powerful vibration. Mm. So finally, the oldest member of the group, which is 28-year-old Mike Rogers, yelled for Travis to get away from there. Travis shot a look back in the direction of the truck for a split second before he turned around to look at the craft again, when suddenly the sounds changed. Travis was jolted by a powerful sound coming from the craft, like the sound of multiple turbine engines starting up. Mm. The saucer started wobbling on its axis like a top does when it's slowing down after Uh spinning really fast. Travis tried to duck down away from it when suddenly an extremely bright bluish beam of light shot from the underside of the craft, accompanied by a sharp electrical cracking sound. Mm. In that instant, Travis saw and heard nothing, but was struck with such a powerful force that it made him feel numb. He compared it to that of like a bolt of high voltage electrocution. (sighs) The beam itself was about a foot across and Travis believed that it struck him in the head and chest. And within seconds, he couldn't see, feel, or hear a thing as he slipped into black unconsciousness. Travis's friends watched in horror as they saw the beam of light strike their friend and lift him into the air. His body lifted off of the ground and bent backwards as though he didn't have a single bone in his body and as if he was completely weightless compared to the powerful beam. Mm. Just as quickly as he was lifted off the ground, the beam of light threw him roughly 10 feet away and he fell to the ground with a sickening thud. One of his friends compared it to him being thrown around like a rag doll. Like it just picked up this grown young man and just tossed him like he was nothing. From their vantage point, they saw Travis laying on the ground, limp and lifeless, and they immediately thought that their friend was dead. Mm -hmm. With the nearest hospital a full hour away, and given the fact that none of them knew CPR or any way that they could help their friend, they kind of panicked and drove off. (gasps) No. They frantically went back and forth about their decision, wondering if they should go back and be with him or if they should go get help or what they should do. And they were also very terrified that maybe the same thing was going to happen to them if they did go back. Mm -hmm. And so there they were, these tough, rugged outdoorsmen who work hard labor for a living, reduced to pale white, shocked faces and complete and utter terror. Wow. They were so scared. And these guys, like, they're sobbing, crying. They're so afraid. That is, like, so intense. Just Mm -hmm. the the sheer, like... What do we do? What do we do? yeah, Yeah. Panic. And the sheer um, adrenaline of the situation. Right. Just like absolutely crazy. Okay. Yeah. Wow. On their drive out of the forest in search of help, they came across another car full of men who offered to rush them into town so they could report what had happened. But what had happened? (laughs) They saw a UFO and witnessed their friend getting blasted with a beam of light and then they left him there. Mm -hmm. No police officer would believe that. Before heading into town and uh, noticing that the craft was no longer in the area, they did decide, okay, let's go back. Let's go check on Travis. Mm -hmm. They all believed that he was dead, but they were like, this probably feels like the right thing to do. Right. right. They were just grasping at any straw they could, really. Wow. So they went back to the clearing where the incident had happened, and much to their shock, Travis was completely gone. Oh, no. They searched the area, but it was hard to see because it was super dark and they only had one flashlight between all of them. Yeah. But even still, they couldn't find so much as a sign that Travis had ever been there at all, which was nuts because they were all positive that he was dead when they first mm-hmm. drove away. Right. Okay, so let's talk about the other loggers really quick. I don't have ages for all of them, but I do know that the youngest of the group was 17-year-old Steve Pierce. He had lied about his age to get his job (laughs) with the logging, which he kind of like giggles about when he talks about it. The oldest was Mike Rogers, who was 28 at the time. The other guys were Dwayne Smith, Kenneth Peterson, John Gillette, and Alan Dallas. So these were all very young guys. Mm -hmm. 
They were a pretty rowdy crew when it was playtime, but they took their work very seriously. They're kind of like the rough and tumble, work hard, play hard crew. Yeah. One of the guys, uh, I think it was Alan Dallas, he did have a few run-ins with the law at the time, but it was all minor stuff from what I gathered. Yeah. The small town of Snowflake, Arizona, and other small towns in the area like it were all home to these guys. And these were the kinds of towns where everybody knows everybody. Mm-hmm. Like there's not really such thing as anonymity in these kinds of towns, right, which right. like I do get because yeah. it's the kind of town that I grew up in. Right. So when they arrived at the police station in nearby Heber, Deputy Sheriff Chuck Ellison was contacted to talk with a group of extremely upset young men to just kind of make a report, figure out what was going on with this very weird situation. Yeah. So it didn't sound like it was something that they had outright discussed before talking to law enforcement, but there was kind of a concerted effort between each of the guys to not use the words flying saucer or like UFO or words like that (laughs) as they were telling the story. But these guys were in, in hysterics. Many of them were crying as they were going over what happened. And Ellison really wasn't sure what, like what to make of any of it. Hmm. It was, I mean, it was very strange at best, really, is what Ellison would say. After listening to the story, he told the guys that it wasn't that he believed him or disbelieved him, but he needed to be objective. Mm -hmm. This is weird. (laughs) Everything that they were saying was so strange. And so he opted to bring in more officers to try and piece the whole story together. Ellison phoned his supervisor, Sheriff Marlon Gillespie, and another officer who I believe his last name is Copeland. They were all interviewed again, and their stories stayed completely consistent. Hmm. They were not under the influence of any kind of drugs or alcohol. Mike told the officers his story just like the others, and he pushed to have police dispatched to the scene and to bring every available resource, dogs, flashlights, all of that, to look for Travis. Yeah. So a crew of officers went out to the scene pretty much right away. They investigated the clearing where Travis was last seen, and just like the loggers, nobody could find him. There wasn't so much as a shoe print, a drop of blood, an imprint where his body was. Mm, Nothing. That's weird. As the hours wore on, a few more people became involved in the search, including some volunteers who each meticulously combed the woods in search of Travis, Mm -hmm. while Mike Rogers and another member of law enforcement drove to a home in Bear Creek, which is about 10 miles from Travis's home in Snowflake. Mm. This was the home of Travis's mother, Mary Kelly. Yeah. So Mike told her everything about that night. She was obviously like, uh, what? Like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But she did ask them if anybody else knew about it. Like, what? what's the status of this as, mm-hmm. like, a, a piece of information in the town? Yeah. Uh, which the police kind of thought that that was a weird question. But they told her, no, right now it's just police and volunteers at this point. By 3 a.m., Mary had called her son, Dwayne, who lived in Glendale, and told him what happened. And so he— pretty much right away, drove out to Mm. Bear uh, Bear Creek to be with his mom. Yeah, yeah. The following morning, the search was still going, but the assumptions had shifted. Obviously, nobody in law enforcement was fully sold that this was happening because someone got too close to a UFO. Right. Like, that's a little bit silly. Yeah, yeah. But when they still couldn't find Travis or even the slightest trace of him, suspicions turned darker. What if these boys had been messing around and Travis got seriously hurt or worse? Right, right. That's the most natural thing to go in this kind of a setting is, okay, the last few people to see him, you know, they're telling us this crazy story. Right. Like, to cover their own butts is probably the general consensus. Yeah. Bingo. They believed that they could possibly be dealing with a very strange case of homicide. Yeah. And so that's the turn that was made in the investigation. Mm -hmm. Foul play absolutely had to be looked into. Right. For the next part of the search, the group of friends was split up and each one was assigned one law enforcement officer to aid in the search since they knew the forest and they were the only witnesses to Travis's ordeal. One of the guys recalled the officer that he was with saying things like, why don't you just tell us where his body is and we can get this whole thing over with and give his family some closure oh, and stuff like that. Yeah. And other guys also had the same experience. They're like, listen, yeah. if you killed Travis, please just show us where you put, where you put his body. Yeah. So it was like very serious. Mm. I would like to point out that if Travis had been murdered due to a dispute or an argument that have gotten like gotten out of hand or something like that, just about every person on the planet would come up with a more believable story to cover the murder. <laughs> right. Like he fell off a tall ledge to his death. He was attacked by right. a wild animal and dragged off. Right. He ran off and got lost or mm. something other than, yeah, I think we I, like I think he got zapped. 
by a UFO. By a spaceship. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's an important thing. Uh, that's, that's a fair point to make. <laughs> like, of all the stories to make up, that would be, like, immediately would put you in the suspicious category. Totally. Like. Yeah. Totally. The next matter of business was to send the loggers off to undergo polygraph exams. The man conducting the exams was considered one of the forerunners of polygraphs at the time. This was Cy Gilson, and he was a polygraph expert with the Arizona Department of Public Safety. So in the world of polygraphs, especially in this region, this guy was one of the best. Each of the men were asked the same series of four questions repeatedly over the course of two hours before they were let go and the next one came in. It was a Mm. very long process. They just kept asking. Yeah. Oh, wow. And while one of the men, Alan Dallas's results were inconclusive due to excessive nervousness and fidgeting, everyone else passed the exam with flying colors. Wow. Apparently, the likelihood of five out of six people in questioning passing the exam and the story still being a lie mm-hmm. is like astronomically small. Right. Like the idea that that's right. possible is very small. Yeah. One of them would have some kind of a reaction that's extreme. There'd be some inconsistency somewhere. Right, right. So I do have to say this. We have talked about polygraphs on the show before, I think more than once. Mm -hmm. And just because the results were clear in favor of this story doesn't make it any less of a skeptical thing. Sure. Like, I'm very skeptical of the the practice. Yeah, that's why polygraphs can't be used in courts of law. Right. That's why it's, you know, kind of, um, I feel like it's even treated in like Hollywood as like, like a backroom thing. Like right. You don't really do a polygraph test to like make a clear uh, evidential case against somebody. You do it almost like in secret to like kind of get a gauge. What happens if I apply this pressure? Yeah, exactly. Well, if you think about like the nature of polygraphs in general, somebody who's coming in in a scenario like this one is already freaked out, mm-hmm. stressed out, high anxiety, right. very nervous. And now- there's the pressure of, we think you might have murdered him. Right. And so then you're in a room with a stranger yeah. strapped into a chair with a bunch of wires hanging off of you mm-hmm. to test your nervousness. Right. Like. I'm sure there's. There's something like 51% reliability on these tests, which is like Ooh, 51% wow. yeah. is pretty bad. Yeah, that's pretty rough. That's, yeah. That, that is the reason why. I can say like out. with full honesty that I'm obviously not a professional. Right. You know, but I feel like I do know at least enough to know that you really can't put too much weight into the results one way or the other. But it was something that was highly factored in in the conversation surrounding this case. Hmm. Okay. So it is relevant to know and it will come up more than once. Yeah. So. Okay. Just to say. That's fair. For days, the search for Travis Walton continued and there were still no signs of him anywhere. Police found no leads. No real cause to believe that any of his friends would have wanted to hurt him, but they kept searching. And then in the middle of the night, just after midnight, on November 10th, so five whole days mm. after Travis's disappearance, Dwayne, Travis's brother, got a phone call. Mm-hmm. On the other line was a man claiming to be Travis. He said he was at a gas station in Heber nearby and that somebody needed to come get him. What? Dwayne didn't believe him at first. But he decided to drive to Heber and see, and sure enough, it was Travis. What? He'd lost about 10 pounds, and he had about five days' worth of beard growth, but he was alive and relatively unharmed. When Travis got into Dwayne's car, he was very skittish. Uh-huh. When Dwayne reached over to, like, hug him or, like, put his hand on him, like he was trying to get away from him. Yeah. But when Dwayne reassured him that he was okay and he was going to get him some help, Travis collapsed into his brother's arms and cried. Both tears of relief and of shock. So when Dwayne told him that their mom had been so worried these past several days, Travis was very confused. He was like, wait, several days? He thought that he had only been gone. Like he thought he was getting home on the same night that he, he didn't even know he was missing basically. Wow. Oh my gosh. Like he was gone for a few hours tops. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So he was rushed to the hospital in Tucson to undergo physical exams, but overall he was mostly okay. He was slightly malnourished from not eating for five days, and they found a small puncture wound behind his elbow. Hmm, that's a weird place. When they ran a toxicology screening to test for drugs, it came back negative on all fronts. There was also no signs of alcohol or any substance of any kind in his system. Hmm. In order to open up the conversation about what Travis had experienced, he decided to undergo hypnosis. 
Hmm. He could recall certain bits of the experience on his own, but the hypnosis allowed him access to more information tucked away in his yeah, brain. Yeah, I've heard of that. Overall, he remembered about two hours out of the five days that he was gone. And we'll get into that in just hmm. a second. So for the guys in the group, they were in shock when they learned that he was home. Yeah. It was almost as unreal and jarring to them as the incident was on the night that he'd gone missing. Like they were all convinced that they were going to go to prison for murder. Right. Now, in a lot of stories of disappearances, the media might cover it, like they might cover a sweet, happy update or a reunion of a missing and found person with their family or mm -hmm. something like that. But when the details about Travis and his friends' claims about what had actually happened went public, an absolute media frenzy began. Wow. All day and all night, members of the group, including Travis and members of law enforcement who were working his case, were inundated with back-to-back -back calls all day and all night from all over the world. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, one of the guys was saying that he literally had a phone in each hand. Yeah. And oh, they wow. he was answering them at the same time, hanging them up, answering two calls at the same time. It was crazy. Wow. Like an extremely yeah. high number of calls. Huh. So on top of all of that, and on top of just the overall stress that and, and kind of anxiety that he was feeling over his situation, the public and the media began harassing him. Oh, that's like the really National sad. Enquirer contacted them. People would yeah. form a huge crowd outside of the hospital where he was recovering even. Mm -hmm. Like it was a zoo. Wow. People wanted answers. Some wanted to gawk at the alien believing loon and others wanted to be the ones to break the latest details in the story. Yeah. It was very wild. Ooh. But it wasn't something, I mean, in fairness, it just was not something that people had ever really heard before, right. you know? Right, right. Travis's own testimony was so shocking that if it were true, and this wasn't some elaborate publicity stunt, it could have changed the very way that society itself operates. <laughs> According yeah. to Travis, yeah. this is what he could remember about what had happened to him after he lost consciousness in the forest. Okay, I am very excited to hear this. You're going to hate this oh, so much. I am you're going to love it, but you're going to hate it. Slightly less excited now to hear this. You're going to be very stressed. <laughs> okay. When Travis woke up, he was laying on a hard surface kind of like an exam table. Mm -hmm. He was groggy and confused and his eyes couldn't fully focus and so he closed them again. He sort of mumbled and groaned and he realized, kind of hit him, that he was in such excruciating pain that he almost passed out again from the sheer intensity of it. Mm. He said that he felt as though he'd been badly burned all over his entire body, including his insides, all at once. He had a metallic taste in his mouth and was desperately thirsty and his body was trembling. He said that the trembling was involuntary and it felt like a mixture of being overexerted and also very ill at the same time. And he felt like if he so much just moved a finger or his hand like to adjust it, that he would pass out again. Wow. He was like that drained. Yeah. So kind of like the feeling of like a super high fever yeah. mixed with <laughs> like trying a to Catastrophic exercise. accident. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All those things all yeah. at once. Ugh. He opened his eyes again and looked around, and a blurry object came into view. Above him was a rectangular light fixture that appeared to be suspended directly over him. He thought his eyes were playing tricks on him because the ceiling appeared to be metal, and it appeared to be oddly shaped, as if one side of the ceiling was larger than the other, so it was almost like a triangle in shape. Hmm. He's like, the rooms aren't triangles. Like This right. is like really weird. I think my eyes are playing tricks on me. Hmm. He was super confused and thought that if there wasn't something wrong with his mind or his eyes, that he was in a very strange place. Suddenly, the memory of what had happened on the night he went missing came back into his mind. He'd been looking at a flying saucer when suddenly there was a loud crack, a bright light, and then blackness. I must be in the hospital, he thought. Hmm. He was relieved at the thought and relaxed a little bit. The air around him was hot and humid to the point that he was sweating, though. He also thought it was weird that he was still wearing his work clothes, boots, and denim jacket and not a hospital gown. So he wondered if maybe he was in some kind of emergency room. Yeah. He then felt something cool pressing down on his chest. It was pushing down very lightly. And when he looked down at it, he saw that it was about a four inch thick thing. It was like curved across his stomach and his chest hmm. and then down each side of his rib cage. It appeared to be made out of metal, but he wasn't sure what kind it was. And he also wasn't sure, like, what the object was at all. Maybe, like, a stabilizer yeah. of some kind. Yeah. As he continued to look around the room, his eyes still hazy and out of focus, he saw the blurry figures of the doctors leaning over him. There were three of them, and they were wearing white masks and caps, but he couldn't totally make out their facial features. 
Suddenly, his vision cleared, and he realized that those were not doctors, and he was not in a hospital. Mm. Using every fiber of his strength, Travis swung the back of his arm at one of the creatures, knocking it into one of the other ones. He hobbled to his feet and fell back against a bench full of unidentified utensils curved along one of the walls in the room. So the strange metal device on his chest went crashing to the floor in the process. Mm -hmm. When he looked down at the device, it was gently emitting greenish little bolts of light each time it rocked back and forth on the floor. Mm. As Travis tried with all of his remaining energy to stand up straight, he saw the three creatures coming towards him, each reaching out to him with their strange little hands. He grabbed the utensils near him and tried to break one of them into a point so he could use it as a weapon, but it wouldn't break. Oh my gosh. Very weird. It was like a tube and it wouldn't break. Cautiously, the creatures continued towards him while Travis screamed at them to get back. He was literally backed into a corner with the creatures surrounding him on every side and was physically weaker than ever before. He took a good look at the creatures. Here we go. Oh my gosh. They were humanoid in form, each under five foot in height. Each had two legs hmm. and two arms with small hands with five fingers on each of each of the hands. Hmm. Okay. So they didn't have any fingernails and they were very small and totally hairless and like uncreased and unwrinkled. Like they didn't have any. Like knuckles or yeah. anything like that. They were just kind of like smooth. Very smooth. Smooth phalanges. They had the basic arrangement of the human form, but beyond that, there was absolutely nothing human about them. Mm -hmm. They had paper white skin stretched out across their frail looking bones. Their skin appeared to be squishy or marshmallowy, as Travis called it. Mm. Each was wearing suede-like coveralls that were orangish brown in color, but he couldn't make out a single fiber or thread in the fabric. Mm. Like very smooth. There were no buttons, snaps, zippers, or seams anywhere on the clothing that he could see. They wore simple pinkish tan shoes on their very tiny feet. Hmm. Their heads were also totally bald. They didn't have eyebrows or eyelashes or any hair that he could see anywhere. Their heads were also disproportionate to their bodies, way bigger than their small frames, and were sort of oblong in shape with large craniums and a small jaw structure. Mm -hmm. They had narrow mouths with very thin lips, and he never saw them open his mouth, their mouths at any point. Oh, yeah, yeah. They had tiny ears on each side of their head and tiny round noses with small oval-shaped nostrils. Travis noted that there was something very baby-like, like Mm. infant-like about their features. Their eyes were very large, roughly twice the size of a human's eye, with very brown irises. Mm. The irises themselves were roughly an inch in diameter, and their pupils were somewhat obscured by their eyelids. So their eyes, when they were looking at him, were almost like cat-like in a way. Oh, yeah. part of their... Eyes were hooded over by their eyelids. Okay. During the whole interaction, the creatures never attempted to speak to him or to each other. The only sounds that Travis could hear were the sounds of his own screaming at them and general movements around the room. So he obviously, he's freaking out. Right. So he's preparing to lunge himself at the creatures to protect himself. And to protect themselves, they all turned and scurried as fast as they could out of the room. Mm -hmm. In like a little shuffly motion. Yeah, yeah. Once he was sure that they were gone, Travis decided to make a run for it. There was a narrow, curving hallway just outside the door, and the ceiling in the corridor was faintly glowing. He didn't see any sign of the creature, so he started down the hallways, looking for any possibility of escape. As he ran down the hallway, it got more and more narrow, Hmm. and so he pushed his way through a doorway and took stock of his surroundings. It was a round room about six feet across, very small with a tall dome-like ceiling Mm -hmm. that was roughly 10 feet tall. The room was empty except for a small chair that was facing away from him. He couldn't quite tell if there was someone sitting in the chair since Mm -hmm. it wasn't facing him. Right. So he slowly made his way to the front of the chair. And so when he got there, he was very excited to find nobody in the chair. Oh, good. (laughs) He's like, okay, there's nobody else in here. (laughs) Interestingly, though, the closer that he got to the chair, the more dim the lighting in the room became and points of light started to appear, almost like he was in some sort of, like, motion-activated planetarium. Weird. Yeah. It's like he would move, like, further away from it to test Uh it, and the lights would brighten, and the little, like, star-like lights would fade, and they'd move closer. Yeah, isn't that very strange? Yeah. Like, what kind of technology Hmm. would that be? So the chair itself had some kind of control panels 
on -hmm. it. On the left arm was a short lever with a molded handle on the end that almost looked like it was activated with a touch of one of those creatures' small hands. Mm -hmm. On the right arm was a small green screen with black lines that intersected at odd angles and more than 20 little buttons arranged in rows by color. He pushed one of the green buttons and then another and then another, wondering if maybe one of these buttons could open up the doors so he could escape. Yeah. But nothing happened. He pushed the lever down to test that as well. And when he did, the stars appeared in the room and like it kind of all began spinning around. Weird. Oh. As he was debating which buttons to try next, he turned and saw a figure in the doorway. But this is where it gets extra strange. The figure looked- I already have goosebumps. I don't know how (laughs) could it get any more strange. Okay. The figure looked like a human. Oh. Yeah. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc so the male form was six feet in height and somewhere around 200 pounds and very muscular He was wearing a clear helmet on his head and a tight-fitted blue suit made of some very soft-looking material. Mm -hmm. He had black boots, a black belt, and carried no weapons or anything in his hands. Relieved at the sight of another person, Travis ran up to the man and started firing off questions. Can you help me? I'm trying to escape. I don't know where I am. Where are we? Please help me. And as he did, the man just stared silently at him. The man then gently took Travis by the arm and guided him into another smaller room where they sat in silence for a few minutes. Hmm. They then walked down a hallway where there were two more men and a woman waiting around the table. What? So like same outfit and everything on each of these people, almost like a different kind of uniform. Yeah. Very strange. So without a word, they lifted Travis onto a table. While Travis protested and continued begging the people for answers, they remained silent. Travis noted that they were all physically very attractive. Hmm. They then laid Travis back, and the woman grabbed what looked to be a surgical oxygen mask, but without any sort of tubing. Mm -hmm. She gently placed it over Travis's mouth and nose. He tried to reach up and pull it off, but before his hand could reach his face, he was unconscious yet again. Oh. The next thing he knew, he was laying face down on the cold pavement in Heber. What? As he looked up, he saw the craft— hovering a little more than 10 feet over the road before it shot up into the sky. He watched it as it quickly turned into nothing more than a white light quickly darting out of sight right before his very eyes. Travis looked around him. He recognized the road that he was on, even in the dark night, and so he took off running as fast as his feet would carry him down the highway until he reached the phone booth at the gas station and called his brother, and now we've come full circle. Wow. So that was his testimony. Yeah. And so it's not <laughs> difficult to see why the media and the public were absolutely going bonkers about it, you right. know? Right. It's, I mean, just that whole thing has so many elements of like classic alien uh, lore, basically. Mm-hmm. And then has other elements that come out of nowhere. Right. Like, the what specific are, shapes yeah. of the rooms, the way that yes. the lighting fixtures worked. Well, and having very attractive looking humans in special suits like begs a lot of questions. Yeah. So, okay. Wow. Unfortunately, spoiler, we don't get any answers <sighs> on that, on that front. Just going to keep begging questions then. I know. It's going to keep begging questions. All right, this episode's over. I want to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, so Travis willingly took a handful of polygraph exams due to the pressure he was getting from all sides, and he passed all but one of them. Oh, wow. One other very weird thing that I learned was that the section of the trees that were closest to the craft have grown much taller and healthier than the surrounding trees. 
It turns out that there have been some kind of studies that have indicated that certain sections of trees in Chernobyl that were exposed to radiation also showed signs of significant health and growth compared to trees that weren't exposed to radiation. That's weird. Yeah. Very weird. So is radiation good for trees but bad for humans? I literally have no idea. That's crazy. I don't know if it's a specific type of radiation. Oh, okay. I don't know. I saw that on the documentary I watched for this. So if that's untrue, then blame it on the guy who said that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Fair, fair. Anyway, yeah, I don't really know how that fits in the story. But I did think it was a wild little little tidbit, you know, to share. For as many people who believed Travis and his mind-boggling story, there were countless more who doubted it. And there was one man in particular who was intensely hell-bent on getting Travis to admit that it was a hoax. Mm. This was a guy named Philip Klass. He was an author and was senior avionics editor at Aviation Weekend Space Technology out of Washington, D.C. Oh, that's a pretty cool-sounding job. Yeah. Okay. So in this next section, what I'm not trying to do is to say that anyone who's skeptical of stories like this is a bad guy. Sure. I think that we obviously need people who are super skeptical in our society. Yeah. People with logical minds and sharp eyes for lies and hoaxes. And I'll always argue that every person should have some level of skepticism in them. Yeah. Like we cannot be walking around completely willing to believe everything we see and hear as absolute fact without ever asking a single hard hitting question. Yeah. It's a matter of wisdom and oftentimes even a matter of safety. But Philip Klass was not a skeptic. He was a debunker. Mm, I'm going to make a distinction. And so debunkers generally make it their mission to tear apart people's eyewitness accounts at any cost. Yeah. Generally speaking, they don't stop there. They go for the very person themselves. They target their credibility in their field, their family life, their personal interests, anything and everything that they can about an individual who comes forward with a story or a pseudoscientific study or finding or proposition. They tend to go into any conversation with someone with a story like Travis's with the mindset of, don't bother elaborating. I've already made up my mind that you're either a lunatic or a liar. And then they operate with the mindset that unless it's been definitively proven, that it's absolutely the equivalent of being disproven. Yeah. Which Travis shared that idea. And I thought that that was a really good way to present how we should look at how these guys, how debunkers tend Mm -hmm. to operate. And that's certainly the case for Philip Klass. Well, and it sounds like they heavily rely on ad hominem. Yep. Like, it's just like straight up like, oh, if I can make you as a person sound crazy or bad or Mm -hmm. wrong in any way, then we're just going to throw out your whole testimony. Right. And that's, yeah, that's really silly. Yeah. And an unfair way to view any kind of fact any kind of philosophy, mm-hmm. any kind of belief or unbelief. Sure. Like attacking someone's character when that's not even really the conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, sure, yeah. bring it into question if it's relevant, but it usually isn't for those kinds of people. Right. So through the 50s and 60s, class had never read anything about UFOs, but was dead set on making sure that everyone knew that they weren't real and that anyone who believed that they were real or could be real were either a quote, crank or a kook, as he liked Mm, to call them. Wow. He was very smart and very well-connected. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but an example of the tenacity of this guy, there's another guy who he wrote the, like, some abstract about observable data of objects in the sky that can't be identified. And then he got a new job out of the country, I think, in Canada. Mm -hmm. And class literally wrote a letter to the national security that are saying this guy's a threat. Oh, geez. Like he did stuff like that. What the heck? Dude? Yeah. He has a very strange vested interest. Yeah. In the wake of Travis Walton's testimony and the media storm that followed, Klaas was a key figure in trying to convince the public that Travis was a liar, and he went to some pretty extreme lengths to attempt to prove that. Mm. So he didn't interview any of the direct witnesses about their stories, but he did have conversations with law enforcement and even the polygraph examiner about the story. Yeah. The polygraph examiner agreed to talk with him and class asked him a series of rapid fire questions, which made him feel overwhelmed. So he asked if maybe class could write down the questions and then send them to him. Mm -hmm. And he'd be super happy to answer all of them honestly. And class never sent the questions. Oh, he just wanted to like catch him off guard. Yeah, he did. 
That's dumb. Interestingly, Class called everyone he could think of surrounding Travis to get a feel for his credibility and hoping to find something he could use to discredit the story and Travis's character altogether. Yeah. Former employers, the friends of Travis, etc. But he never once attempted to contact Travis himself in any way. Not by phone, mail, or in any other way. Which I also thought was interesting. That is really weird. Why? Like, why? He's it's, the one that you're trying to discredit. Well, obviously, it's because he well, and he wrote about humans. him. He also wrote about him as though they had a conversation, but it never happened. Oh, and what? also, like, he compiled it uh, from from me reading it. Yeah, it looks as though he compiled it from some of the other interviews that Travis did give, mm-hmm. but he like twisted Travis's words to make him sound really dumb. Oh, jeez. But Travis is very well spoken. Like yeah. anybody who's ever listened to him speak, they're like, "Wow, this guy is." So, so uh, articulate, thoughtful, Mm -hmm. all of that. So I thought that that was really interesting. Yeah. Well, Philip Class obviously was one of the humans on the ship and needs to cover it up. That's (laughs) That's that's, it. That's what it is. That's got to be it. (laughs) So the loggers also thought that this was weird. Like the whole group of friends thought it was weird. So they all got together and typed up a joint letter that they would send to Class where they essentially challenged him. Hmm. They told him that they were unhappy with how he was speaking about them and attacking their honesty and integrity. They offered to each take another polygraph exam as long as everyone in the group, including class, could agree on the examiner. Hmm. They even offered to pay for the exams themselves if they didn't pass. But if they did, class would have to cover the cost and leave the whole story alone. And class declined. Of course he did. Not interested. (laughs) Jeez. He asserted, you're going to roll your eyes so hard. Yeah. So he asserted that this was an elaborate hoax on the part of Travis and the logging crew, that they planned the whole story out, hid Travis in a cabin in the woods, and even said that the puncture wound discovered by the medical team in Tucson that took care of him Mm -hmm. was from injected LSD, despite the fact that his medical report showed no presence of any type of drug, period. Right. He went on to state that the contract that Mike was under for logging in the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest was under fire, and instead of extending it or altering it, they invented this story to get out of the contract altogether while maintaining at least a sum of the earnings. So there actually had been a small issue with the logging contract. Like they were like a little bit behind schedule. Yeah. But had Travis's incident not happened, they would have been able to make up for it by working longer hours until they were caught up. Right. Like it really wasn't even that big of a wasn't, deal. Yeah, anything crazy. That but Class sense. was convinced that this was the motive. He even tried to urge for a federal criminal investigator to come and force Mike to confess that this theory was true. Thankfully for Mike and the crew, the contractors drafted and signed an affidavit stating that the theory of the contract gone bad would not have benefited Mike or the crew in any way, and that with coming forward, the group had been harmed in their reputations and abilities to do their jobs in peace. Right. Class went as far as to track down Steve Pierce, who had moved out of the state for work, despite the fact that Steve had changed his name to his middle name at the time. So he tracked him down. He took him to dinner, and that's where he offered him $10,000 to publicly admit that the story was a hoax, which $10,000 is a lot anyways, but in today's money, that would be roughly $56,400. Oh my gosh. That's a lot of money. Full year's salary for most people. Steve declined the money because it's true. Because- that's what they saw. Good for Steve. Good That's for Steve. That's a stand-up guy right That's there. That's a real stand-up guy. Oh, what a good so guy. So that does beg the pretty obvious question, especially that last bit. Why would anyone go to such lengths to shut down a story like Travis Walton's? Yeah. Like, we can't say for sure, but there are a ton of people who looked more into it. And what they discovered actually shocked me. Mm. So okay. I said before that Philip Class was well-connected, and that's true. Yeah. He could land an op-ed in the New York Times with no effort beyond a phone call. Digging more deeply into some of his closest friendships and connections, it was learned that Class was connected to a man named Donald Menzel, a fellow debunker, and this dude had some serious credentials. He was an astronomer at Harvard and was widely respected for his work. Hmm. So here's where this whole thing gets super crazy. It was learned that Menzel was directly connected to and to a degree involved with the NSA, the National Security Agency in mm-hmm. the United States. Mm-hmm. It was learned that he had written a letter to President Kennedy, who was on the board at Harvard, stating that he may be able to provide special assistance in the realm of national security as it pertains to astronomy and looked forward to connecting after they were granted proper clearance. Mm. 
which sounds very official to me. Yes, it does. In the 70s and 80s, the NSA was widely under the radar, so much so that Menzel's own wife didn't know that he was involved with them at all. Wow. At the same time, the CIA had been confirmed to have been in very close connection with various heavy hitters in journalism. The journalists were being paid big bucks to give the CIA information regarding national security. So, like, if a journalist would attend a conference overseas, that journalist would have their trip paid for, and they'd be paid for the information that they brought home. Wow. Okay. So why does this matter to today's story? Given the fact that class— a heavy hitter in the world of avionic journalism, and Menzel, a Harvard astronomer and informant for the NSA, were connected. Many people believe that Class himself was being paid by the CIA to debunk any and all UFO stories for the sake of national security. Wow. If this were true, it would make his extreme efforts to shut the story down make a little bit more sense. Yeah. Also, his his earnings were public information. Uh Uh-huh. He did not have the kind of money to throw $10,000 to a 20-year-old kid. Yeah. So why did he spend seemingly every waking moment trying to debunk this story specifically? Crazier yet, Walton gained access to the documents covering the FBI investigation Mm -hmm. that was conducted on class Mm -hmm. through the Freedom of Information Act. And while he hasn't shared the ins and outs of that document, it's fairly obvious that he was employed by an intelligence agency— and he attended conferences regarding aviation globally and was the forerunner of destroying Travis's story. In fact, Class even introduced himself to the Arizona law enforcement members as an FBI investigator. Oh, wow. But then the next question is, why would the CIA care about a 22-year-old story about being abducted by aliens? Let's just think about this for two seconds. Uh uh If all of the world's governments came out and said, hey, y'all, By the way, we have verified evidence of crafts and lights in the sky. And while we won't readily admit that they're extraterrestrial, we will say that we can't identify what they are and we have no clue how they operate since they're wildly more advanced than anything we have on our planet anywhere. (laughs) Not only that, but we are positive that they had visited us before. Yeah. So we don't know why, but like, yeah, that's what it is. The public would freak out. Right. People would stop going to work. Society, in theory, could collapse into panicked chaos as such a revelation. It could also be dangerous to the overall structure of the world and how different countries relate to one another, Mm -hmm. to finance, and to overall, like the overall order of the world. The government has declassified some extremely strange videos in recent years, which we've talked about on the show. But surely not all of the videos, documents, and information that they do have about what's piloting the ships or how they work or what they're even made out of. So I could spend an entire episode on that topic, and I probably will at some point because it's actually really terrifying to me and so fascinating. Yeah. But let's wrap this thing up. Well, first, before we wrap this thing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me your thoughts. My Well, here's the thing. The the theory of society collapsing if it were to come out that UFOs are real and aliens have visited us. If they admitted it publicly, because yeah, they yeah, very yeah. quietly declassified that's those ads. That's those, what I'm getting at. That's yeah. what I'm getting at. Was I remember kind of the humor? I feel like Saturday Night Live did a did a did a piece about it one time, like on their like weekend update, mm-hmm. where they were like, "By the way, the president has announced UFOs are real, and no one cares." You know, right. like it's this whole thing. Like there, there's so much in the news cycle anymore that. Unless you were to actually present an alien life form, it would almost go like completely yawned at because it's like, oh, yeah, whatever. And even then, part of me kind of believes if an alien life form was presented, I think most people would still be like, let's take a selfie with it. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like that, that would be, it wouldn't be like. Will you come on our podcast? (laughs) Yeah. It wouldn't be nearly as like. Shock well, and awe. You do have to think about though, remember a couple of years ago, I think maybe during during lockdown for COVID, mm-hmm. how they brought together like every major religious world leader and a bunch of politicians to talk about hypothetically what <laughs> they would do to calm their people down if they did in fact potentially hypothetically release documents that would prove. Yeah. yeah. I do vaguely remember that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, yes, to a degree, but I think for real, if 
the president and the prime minister of Canada and all these people all around the globe decided on Wednesday next week that they're going to break the news to the world, a lot of people would panic. Yeah. Maybe not everybody. Maybe but not a everybody. Lot, a lot of people would panic. We'd see a lot of really funny Facebook posts. So many good memes would come out of it. Incredible. But you also need to factor in that there are these conversations about the CIA actively covering the existence of UFOs and all that kind of stuff has been in conversation for like 80 years at this yeah, point. That's true. That's true. So it's fair. Society has so, also changed quite a bit since then. Right. We, I, I, I just, the point I'm getting at, I don't know that if that did come out, that it would lead to widespread panic. I think we'd actually have a lot of people who would, they would probably react maybe a little strongly, but they would probably react in a very like defensive way, not so much a panic in the the sky is falling kind of a way. You don't know though. You I don't. don't and that is know. true. That's the mystery but of it. if I did, I wouldn't tell you. That's not I true. think it's I safe to assume. <laughs> it's safe to assume that there would be all kinds of reactions. For sure. For sure. That's a fair point to make. All right. Please continue. So in the months and years following Travis's incident, he remained on the radar of the media and other interested parties. While some of his friends moved away for the sake of just being able to work and live their lives in peace, Travis stayed in Snowflake, knowing full well that everyone knew who he was and what he had claimed had happened to him. There was a decades-long strain in some of his friendships, specifically between his friendship with Steve. Mm, but at yeah. the encouragement of Steve's wife, he decided to reach out and forgive Travis for how the experience impacted the lives of everyone who was involved for decades afterwards. Wow. To this day, Travis has maintained his story. Despite not having a desire for public speaking, he has spent many years going to conferences and events where he tells his story, creating a safe space for others who have seen something strange in the sky or are frightened to share about their own secret experiences. And those people can just come and be themselves. Mm -hmm. He just really wants to help people with his story. Wow. He wants to leverage it to help people. Yeah. So he wrote a book, Fire in the Sky, in the 90s, which was then adapted to a movie by the same title in 1993. And I have to tell you that really? that is still one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. For but real? like bar none. That movie is terrifying to me. I haven't watched it in a long time. Hmm. And so maybe it wouldn't freak me out as much now. But that movie messed me up when like, I was is younger. It, is it meant to be a horror movie? Is yes. It, really? So okay. it's not fully true to Travis's book or to his, any of his testimony. Oh, okay. It's like... It's based off of fire in the sky. Yeah, yeah. But it uh, is. And they make it way scarier. Sure. Very intense. Huh. But like, I feel like that Jeez. one's a must watch. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. I've never even heard of it, so. Well, we're going to watch it. <laughs> I guess we are. <laughs> <laughs> I actually saved it on our watch list because I knew you hadn't seen oh, it. Oh, good. Yeah, that's fair. Because if you had, you would have known this I, story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At least part of it. So as for Travis today, he believes that. He had his experience for a reason. Mm -hmm. In Travis's mind, he thinks that the aliens did intentionally bring him on board their craft, but not to experiment on him or for any other nefarious reason. Mm. Once he began healing from the fear and the trauma of his experience, he came to the conclusion very slowly that they brought him along to help him. Mm. Given the intensity of the electrical shock he endured when he was struck with the light, he believes that he may have actually died, or at the very least that he was seriously injured due to the blow. Oh, yeah. He thinks that they brought him on board to heal him. There were several elements of his experience that seemed like they were not trying to hurt him and that they were actually, like, they were actually, like, very timid. Mm, and, like, they were interested, obviously, in him. Yeah. And they were, like, trying to calm him down. And so, like, as he's replaying his experience in his mind, he's like, I don't <sighs> think that this was actually malevolent or nefarious in any way. That just gave me goosebumps, but like in a different way. Well, I'm like, even getting Ooh. struck with the light. Yeah. He said that as he got close to it mm -hmm. is when the sounds changed mm -hmm. and when the engine seemed to turn on and it looked as though it was trying to back away as it was rocking. Oh, wow. And so maybe it was trying to keep this little human out of danger. Right. And when it wow. didn't work, they're like, well, we better make this right. Oh, gosh. That's like literally what he believes. Yeah. That's that like they felt very... like a responsibility to revive and heal him instead of leaving him there. Yeah. That's a very sweet view of it for sure, which I'm sure there are many testimonies that 
don't match that kind mm-hmm. of a story. Back to SNL. Yes. But that one, <laughs> yeah, back to SNL. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. <laughs> we just talked about this like a week ago, I feel like. Oh my gosh. Yeah, if you've never seen the SNL skit about the three people abducted by aliens, that's, mm-hmm. that's a funny best. one to watch. Uh, yeah, to have like an experience that these beings would do something altruistic mm. instead of nefarious or uh, even just like for scientific, just for science in their own minds. Mm-hmm. Like it actually gives me like a weird sense, like, like all of my hairs, my body's just stood up on end just thinking about it. But it's mm. not because it's scary. It's because it's like so extremely human and Wouldn't like, that be a relief? That would be a huge relief, honestly. <laughs> they <laughs> but, just want to help. Yeah, it's like a, a crazy thought to think about these beings who uh, who would do something like that. And I mean, you and I, we've read a couple of books that like that is what aliens mm, do in those yeah. stories. And uh, I love it. But that's not like the general consensus of what what alien life forms do. Yeah. So right. <laughs> it'd be, it would be incredible. And I would be psyched out of my mind to know that that was the direction that they were, they were going. Uh, but it would also be like really shocking. Right. Cause the whole, the consensus is they're here for world domination. They're here to test us. They're here to see what's, you know, it's very mm-hmm. dark. Yeah. And for that, for, for Travis's, uh, conviction to be they actually are helping they're mm-hmm. actually inherently good yeah is like once again i just got goosebumps again because yeah. that's so human yeah and it, it would tie us to those kinds of beings in a way that's deeper right than, than there's an instant the camaraderie there yeah exactly yeah. which would be crazy right yeah. So whether or not you believe in Travis's story, whether you think that he's a liar or crazy or that the experience was a hallucination or whether you believe every word of it, I'd just like to challenge each of our listeners to think about it and to ask yourself this question. What if? Mm-hmm. What if this story is true? And that's what I have for you today. Wow. Wow. What if though, man, right? What if? Somebody asked the question, um, I don't remember, it, it was one of the guys in the group. Uh, they have a sibling who is a professor at mm-hmm. a college in New York. And the friend's like, it's not that I don't believe you. Like, I believe you saw something. But like, why do they always go to people like you who you don't have further education and they don't come to somebody like me mm-hmm. who does? Mm-hmm. And the friend, the friend couldn't really answer it. She's sure. like, well, I don't, I can't tell you that I know. Right. But in my mind, I'm like, well, are you logging in the middle of a multi-million <laughs> acre forest at night? Yeah. On a Wednesday right. in the dark? Like, no. Not You're in New York often. in a city. Right. These happen in a lot of isolated areas a lot of the time. Right. So. It's not the kind of thing that university professors who live in the suburbs are likely <laughs> to experience. Right. Like, just, Yeah. From the observable information that we do have, generally mm-hmm. speaking, yes, there are some cases where they appear to large, appear in like large yeah, city yeah. areas and groups and stuff like that. Yeah. But for the most part, many, many, many reports right. are in isolated places. One mm-hmm. or two people see it, maybe from different angles or what have you. Yeah. Generally speaking, they're not in brightly lit cities. Well, Or if they were, you wouldn't see them anyways. That's true too. But I was even going to go as far as to say there have been videos of these things being seen in brightly lit cities. Mm-hmm. Tons of videos from different vantage points. Yeah, that's true. That have been unable to be debunked. And yet people just wave it away as a hoax. Right. Because it's easier to do that than to consider the possibility that, that we're not oh, alone. We can't explain it. So therefore, there's a great possibility we're not alone. And that's wild. And I get it. I get that it's kind of scary. But it's also, it doesn't have to be, especially if you have the the approach that Travis has, which I think is really cool. He really is sweet. a really, really sweet guy. Yeah. I would encourage everybody to go either rent or buy the Travis documentary. I think it's just called Travis on mm. um, YouTube. It is, nice. that's the only place I could find it available. Yeah. Like it's on other places, but not available to rent or buy for some reason. Weird. But he, 
his, he's given his story. He's just telling his story. It's several decades later. It's like 40 years after the fact right. at the time that they filmed this. Hmm. But like he went back out to the area with his friend and like him and his friends were hugging and he went out and he camped there a few times just to like be in the area where he was the night that yeah. his life changed. And the way that he talks is very compassionate, very clear. He is a really, really special guy. And yeah. everybody who's met him at these conferences says that he is actually that kind. Like, wow. he's just a really good guy. That's and really cool. there's this thing that oozes out of him that, like, if he doesn't, if he actually doesn't want to help people, and this is all, like, a money-making scheme, and he made it all up, then he's a really good actor. Yeah. Well, and he still must be a very kind person regardless right. who just makes money off of this. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, makes money oh, off no. of making people feel warm inside. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, he's great. <laughs> wow. Well, I don't have anything else to add, but <laughs> I felt like I was going to, and I'm like, that would be opening a can of worms. I don't need to open right now. So with that being said, thank you everybody for listening to the extremely unusual, sometimes unsettling, and a little bit unsavory in places story today. Please make sure if you haven't already subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and make sure you leave a glowing five-star review. Um, those reviews help other people to find podcasts like this. Also, if you haven't already, make sure that you're following us on social media. We are on Instagram and TikTok at this one is a doozy and on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. And if you want to connect with us even more directly, you can do so via Patreon. My dear, why don't you tell everybody about Patreon? Yeah, so you can follow the link in our Instagram bio or our Facebook about section, or you can go to patreon.com slash doozypod. And for $5 a month, you can support what we're doing on our show. Um, everybody on Patreon gets access to every episode ad-free, as well as two monthly bonus episodes that are exclusive to Patreon. Mm -hmm. You also get access to polls where you help us decide on things like episode topics and a monthly organization that we'll be donating our money to. So yeah. if you want to get in on that, head on over. Yeah. And those Patreon episodes, I've said this before, and I will say it over and over again, are some of our best. I like, really like the one we did this week. Yeah. I The Wizard. We just love these. I know. That's all I got to say. And then it's like, what? I'm missing out? That's right. You are. So get over on Patreon. <laughs> and there's almost 10 of them. So you've got some catching up to do. That means yeah. we've done almost 80 episodes, 70 right. public. That's crazy. Anyway, I don't need to push it anymore. Just get on Patreon. There's nothing better for you to do anyway with your $5 we, a month. We would right? love to have you. Yes. Well, with that... We will see you next week for another doozy. Thank you. Bye. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.